Hello, listeners. Just wanted to give you a quick prompt here before our episode. This is going to be part one of a conversation we had with Darren Case. Part one is basically about what happened from a tax and estate planning perspective post-election. And then part two is a rapid fire session where I just throw ideas at Darren and get his take. Hope you enjoy. is that Brent does not care who's in elected office. He's perfectly comfortable with Kanye West being president of the United States (laughs) and implementing the Kanye West tax planning policy. So Brent is okay with that. That's on the record. So I just want to clarify that. Yeah, personally, yeah. Personally (laughs) and individually, okay with that outcome. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and per usual, I am joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. I uh, I play soccer mm-hmm. on Friday evenings, and I'm not as young as I used to be, and so it takes me a lot longer to kind of warm the body up and actually play. But the other part about it is a mental side of the game, where when I was younger, getting injured was not high on my list, or avoiding getting injured was not high on my list, and now avoiding getting injured is like the whole point of me being there. <laughs> Playing the game is secondary to not getting injured, and I and I already have in my head that like when I get injured to an extent that I can no longer play soccer, then I'll go do some other thing for physical fitness. Like I already, and I, I think I know what the next thing is. <laughs> so next one, what, is it golf? No. Well, my hope is that I don't get so injured that I can't play golf too, but that's okay. not physical fitness. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could kind of justify it, right? If you don't take the golf cart around, you get some, you know. Get some yeah, you could walk. You could walk. Yeah. <laughs> no, my, sorry, my, uh, my next thing is when I don't have to play soccer and I don't need to be in sort of like soccer shape, then I will hit the gym harder. Okay. That'll be my physical fitness thing. But while I'm playing soccer, I actually don't need to hit the gym super hard because I'm running around like, a, like I'm running a marathon. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I have in the back of my mind. I just know like someday it's going to catch up to me. I'm no longer going to be able to play. Either my body's going to give out or somebody's going to come straight through my knee and <laughs> you'll, you'll see me on a gurney somewhere. Oh, <laughs> well, I hope that day doesn't come. <laughs> that's uh, not something to look forward to at all. That is a, that'll be a recovery process for sure. The gurney will just be because I'm so old and winded that I can't get up. <laughs> They'll need the gurney to just- They have to carry you. (laughs) It won't actually be because of an injury. (laughs) Well, the day that that happens, um, well, we'll make sure it gets recorded or something, just so we we have evidence of all of that. (laughs) I'd be honored. I'd be honored. (laughs) So it'll be a momentous occasion, you know? Mm The day you just couldn't do soccer anymore. I'll be sad. I I like doing it. It's fun. But so I used to play a lot of basketball too. I quit playing basketball because I got tired of turning my ankles and jamming my fingers. Mm. So I gave that up maybe 10 years ago. So now I'm just left with soccer. Then when this catches up to me or, you know, I just can't physically do it anymore, then I'll just I'll have to go do the next thing. <laughs> Well, soccer is no joke. That is definitely uh, a lot of work. Mm-hmm. But it's a big field, so you can be very selective for the most part on how hard you play. 
Very, <laughs> that's true. You, know, you don't always have to be near somebody. It's not like basketball where it's very confined spaces. Like you can be in confined spaces in soccer, but that's sort of by choice. That's true. That's yeah. a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. Just uh, don't, don't, don't switch positions. Don't be goalie then, you no. know, take it, take it easy. Go defense. I'm not a goalie. I'm definitely not a goalie. Mm -mm. Uh, well, we have a repeat visitor to the podcast tonight. Uh, Darren Case was with us pre-elections. We talked about pre-election stuff. Now the elections have happened or partly happened, I guess. So he's back to talk about elections. So welcome again, Darren. Thanks, Brent. Thank you, Rachel. Um, I'd like to say it's just wonderful to still be a tax and estate planning attorney during a pandemic and election year, but uh, that I'd be full of it if I say that. Oh. It is weird. It is weird. Uncertainty um, is good for the tax business and it's probably bad for real business. Yeah, it, it's insanely busy still. And the election um, didn't bring us absolute certainty on what's going on. So it, it, it's kind of an interesting state of limbo right now. I'm sure you guys are probably experiencing the same thing. Mm -hmm. I, so we were talking, Darren, we were talking last time you were on about like putting letters together and sending letters out to clients. I know you did that we did that. And now it's like, oh man, I got to do a whole new letter. I got to send <laughs> another round of letters out, you know, get mm -hmm. another round of responses to letters back. And, and it's, you know, it's beginning of, or it's all basically the middle of, this, of November. Now, when I previously sent the letters out, I had months to work with. Now I've got a month and a half to work with when I start getting responses. Yeah. I sent the follow-up letter of saying, Hey, uh, the election, there's no certainty. We're still waiting on a few Senate races. So, uh, you know, it's probably still a good idea to move forward, but your guess is as good as mine at this point on what's going to happen in those runoff elections in Georgia in January 5th. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, I was waiting a little bit out of, um, I'll say respect for some of my clients and their firmly held political beliefs because I was certain <laughs> if I had sent out the letter the day after the election, I would have gotten quite a number of responses to the effect of, well, this thing isn't over this election. We don't know who's going to win this election. You know, we, we got to wait. This could still go Trump's way. I think if I'm not overstepping here, I think we're beyond that response. <laughs> You know, I think this whole process has been fascinating because it gives you a chance to speak with your, your high net worth clients because, I mean, that's really the, the gist of what's going on here. You know, once we get certainty in, in the estate tax laws, we're going to see a lot of impact on the lower net worth clients as well. Do they need to move to like an ABC trust since they're, if the exemption amount does drop? But it's been fascinating to me is just speaking with clients all over the wealth spectrum, not only, you know, on whether or not they want to proceed on advanced estate planning, gifts to IDGIT, SLATs, or whatever strategy that ultimately you're utilizing, but also seeing their perspective of what was going to happen in the election. I got certain clients that uh, they said, Darren, why the hell are you calling me? Trump is going to win in an absolute landslide, so this is a waste of my time. And, and then I had people on the other side ultimately saying that Biden was going to win in an absolute landslide. There was going to be a blue wave and so forth. And, and, and you know, that technically didn't happen. Biden, obviously... <laughs> to most people's opinion, has won the presidency. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm trying to say that, not giggle. I'm trying to be sensitive. That was, a, that was very tactful. Yeah, you, that, you did well, that nicely. 
Thankful. Thank you. I appreciate it. But um, just just nobody, I, I think, predicted this outcome. Republicans picked up, you know, seats in the House. Um, the Senate did not go, well, at least for the time being, did not go blue. And now all of a sudden, the state planning attorneys are having to become experts on the political climate and runoffs in the state of Georgia. I didn't realize that I'd, I'd look into like the history of Purdue and Loeffler and their odds to win just so I'd have a nice, you know, Christmas and New Year's knowing that I don't have to jam all these estate plan transactions in before the end of the year. So that was not a prediction that anybody that I spoke to had that, hey, it'd be, you know, we still won't know the Senate until January 5th of 2021. Yeah, I, I definitely was not expecting that. Now, I think actually to our credit, your and my credit, I think we did talk about the fact that it could be, or this is pre-election, it could be the case that Biden wins the presidency and they don't flip, the Democrats don't flip the Senate. Just, we didn't predict that Biden could win the presidency and the Senate not be certain until 2021. <laughs> I was never guessing that we would not know the outcome of the elections for, for seats in the Senate until 2021. Yeah, I'd be curious to see, and I've spoken with other attorneys in the area. I'm I, I just so curious on what we're advising clients. Now, for me, and maybe your you know, advice to clients is similar, is that, hey, um, while it looks likely just historically that the Republicans will keep one of the two Senate seats in Georgia, and uh, Purdue has been there a very, very long time, and arguably is very well liked, but conservatively speaking, and not in the political context, but just making sure that you use your exemption before you lose it, is the advice still right now is that we need to proceed as though we could lose our exemption in 2021. If both of those, those Senate seats flip the blue, I still personally think that they will pass tax legislation some point in 2021 that will be retroactive to January 1st. I, I think that that's a certainty if we see those two, two blue seats, because it would be low-hanging fruit, in my mind, to appease the Democratic base by essentially repealing Trump's tax bill, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. That would be, you know, item number one on the agenda for Democrats, in my mind, lowering the exemption amount to either $3.5 or just cutting it in half from the 11.58. Yeah, I could see that happening. The scary part about that possibility is the law will have changed, sorry, the makeup of government will have changed after the end of the year. So you can mm -hmm. be waiting for those elections to happen before deciding what to do. Then the election happens. If it goes all blue, you could then have a tax law that predates the date of the election, is retroactive mm -hmm. to a day before the date of the election, the election, the event that you are waiting to see what happens in. I mean, that is mm -hmm. wild. And, and there's nothing worse than advising clients to proceed in a certain direction. And then the tax laws, in my mind, I feel bad for a lot of clients where if they gift their assets to the next generation, to an irrevocable trust. Yes, there's ways to ultimately lend assets back or you know, have various other aspects involved where they could potentially have some access. But if they're making irrevocable gifts of 11.58 or 23.16 million, and then all of a sudden, lo and behold, the tax laws don't change, even if you advise them sufficiently in writing and several times over the phone, Zoom or whatever you know, correspondence that you're having, they're gonna be upset in the end saying, well, you know, I, I thought I was going to lose my exemption. I still have it. And so for a lot of clients, it's been sitting down and explaining to them, it's like, I mean, yes, this arguably could be your best chance to use your exemption amount before you lose it. But if you wait 
there are certain transactions you could do after the fact. And as I mentioned during the last podcast, I have an unhealthy obsession with grats. <laughs> and so if clients that didn't use their exemption, the exemption amount drops, I'd be like, great, we're going to do tons of grats. It's going to be wonderful. Darren's going to be super happy about that. Yeah, that's that's the reality too, is, is if the exemption goes down, then we'll just use different techniques. And I mean, I, I tell my clients already, even with the very, very high exemption, I said, well, if, if we use up all of your exemption, that doesn't mean we have to stop doing the planning. I can think of a bunch of ways to do lots of good planning without any exemption. So I'm not overly concerned with use burning through it right now. We, I mean, Rachel and I had talked about this from time to time. You know, we have our own, of course, personal political convictions, but it's like from a, from a business standpoint or from a professional standpoint, I couldn't care less who is in the government. I do, I just don't care. And I don't care what laws they pass. All I want to know is what it is. Because once I know what it is, then I will know, hopefully, how to plan with it. And that's all mm -hmm. we do. We just wait for the laws to get passed, and then we pivot, and we change the planning, or we don't change the planning. Just like if we have extra exemption, we know we're going to use techniques that use the extra exemption. If, if we lose exemption, we know we're going to use techniques that don't require exemption at all, like GRATs, which I'm a big fan of too. So you and I are kindred spirits in the GRAT land. So to, to paraphrase Brent, is that Brent does not care who's in elected office. He's perfectly comfortable with Kanye West being president of the United States <laughs> and implementing the Kanye West tax planning policy. So Brent is okay with that. That's on the record. So I just want yeah, to clarify yeah. that. Yeah, personally, yeah, <laughs> personally and individually okay with that outcome. Absolutely. <laughs> Got it right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but uh, I, I will, I'll mention this. So I, I may have mentioned this the last go around, but uh, the political climate right now in this country is uh, I, I presented, gosh, well, for one, it was for the Southern Estate Planning Council, but I did for the Maricopa County and a few other places on the Biden tax proposal. And I was too afraid to make Kanye West jokes like during the presentation because I actually got feedback from people before I presented on some of these things about like, how dare you present on the Biden tax proposal? You're trying to sway the election. And I'm like, no, no, no. Same thing as, as Brent was saying is that I don't really you know, care who ultimately gets elected. We need to know these things before the tax laws change if we're going to do you know, a good service to our clients. But yeah, I was, so I, I eliminated some of my Kanye West jokes from my, my tax planning uh, presentations, unfortunately. That was probably wise. All things considered, <laughs> probably wise. I was yeah. honestly, I was a little bit disappointed that Kanye did not make the ballot in Arizona. Mm. I was a little <laughs> disappointed. I thought that would have been really fun. Yeah, I looked at the states. He actually, one state, I think he got like uh, 15,000 votes. It may have been Minnesota, but he, he was definitely in the, the thousands, which was uh, way to go, Kanye. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Why not? More choices. Why not more choices? I. One thing that I did notice this is a little off topic, but one thing I did notice, because I, I always do a mail-in ballot because I'm a lazy SOB, okay? So <laughs> I don't want to go down and stand in line. I know that sounds horrible to some people and they're probably uh, unfriending me or they will never talk to me in social circumstances now that they know that, but I do not want to go stand in line. Um, that's not fun to me. So I always do a mail-in ballot. and I was, But I was noticing that this year on my mail-in ballot, just how few choices there were. It was like two choices. It was like red or blue, two choices per, sometimes not even 
it was just one person running unopposed um, on the ballot. That was surprising. I don't know if that was just me noticing it now or in the past, there were more options on the ballot, but it just seemed pretty sparse. So I was disappointed Kanye didn't make it <laughs> for that reason. Well, I will mention this uh, in relation to the uncertainty as well on who's getting elected, this and that. I think well, obviously we focus heavily on estate gift and generation skipping transfer tax. Um, but the capital gains component of this, where we are seeing people moving forward with the sale of their business this year, thinking the capital gains rate is going to drop or sorry, not drop, it's going to go up. So you're going to eliminate capital gains from 20%. Essentially, you're paying ordinary income at what they're proposing is 39.6%. And what's fascinating is that, I mean, people are having to choose between selling their business during COVID, and if they're not in the sales of toilet paper, hand sanitizer, gloves, or pasta, I mean, their business most likely took a significant hit. And if they're being forced to sell at a low valuation, and then all of a sudden the tax laws don't change and they would have had capital gains, gosh, I'd be angry as well. And so I feel, I really feel bad for, for taxpayers right now, um, especially in that arena, because if they put their blood, sweat and tears into a business and this is their one chance for that liquidity event, um, taxes are a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I've advised clients on that topic. I had some clients who were contemplating selling businesses and told them, look, if you're going to pull a trigger and you're a a betting person, you might bet that this is the year to do it, get it wrapped up, wrapped up by 1231. Um, and then I've had other clients who are in real estate. And I've said, if you're going to do 1031 exchanges, and you want to roll the dice on this, you might as well do it this year. Because if the Biden tax plan is implemented, 1031 exchanges are going to be pulled off the table next year, too. And for quite a few of my clients in the sort of real estate development arena, that would be very bad for them. Yeah, I just I have a hard time. I know I saw it in the Biden tax proposal, but when you see Section 1014 and 1031 being attacked, I'm like, I just don't believe it. <laughs> I mean, I think in the end, that's, that's going to stand. <laughs> 1031 exchanges, they've been around since essentially the beginning of the tax code and, and the step up in basis in 1014. And so I think it's my disbelief that they'd actually go that far. But I mean, there are real, real things that ultimately can be attacked. And so, yeah, a lot of our real estate clients, 1031s, they're, they're really forcing those to, to get uh, passed quickly or get completed quickly. <laughs> So then uh, on the Biden tax plan, in, in relation to what has happened, I guess, in the presidential election, uh, it's probably not so important in, in the House because the Democrats still control the House. And understanding that we have this uncertainty in the Senate, um, are you telling clients to basically just pretend like the Biden tax plan is going to be the plan? Uh, it's a long discussion. Um... I mean, for clients, I mean, if you're working with their um, financial advisor and they're ultimately saying, hey, you can gift this amount and it'd be a wonderful problem to have is you can gift this amount and you won't miss it. Your assets, the you know Monte Carlo analysis that they do or the projections and says that, you know, 99 out of 100, you will not outlive your assets based even after you make such a large gift. For those clients and if the, their age, um, you know, based upon where they're at, I'd say, yes, let's absolutely push forward. We, we need to get the assets out of the estate regardless. This is a great time to do it. I've been a big proponent too for my, for my older clients where their kids are grown um, to set up uh, an intentionally defective grantor trust 
The child can be the trustee of their own IGIT. It's for their benefit, but really we just give a HEM standard. But for the gift ultimately to the IGIT, even though the child is a beneficiary, I, I'm my strong recommendation is apply the GST tax exemption to that gift. And, and that way you're using your state tax exemption and your, your as much as your GST tax exemption. The kid has complete access to it if they so choose, or they can leave it in this asset protected tool for the next generation and ultimately have some say for it. So I've been really harping on clients just saying, let's get the trust established at the very least. Let's get that in place and maybe fund like, you know, a nominal amount into the IGIT to start with. And then we can decide whether we're going to pull the trigger on the rest of it. But I've had quite a few clients, I'd probably say 60 to 70% of my clients, they're still pushing forward as though the Biden tax proposal will go through. Yeah, I don't think we're probably not quite that high. uh, But we have we definitely have clients that are moving forward with the planning. It sounds like it's very similar for us, uh, which basically means Rachel's been drafting digits and when we do it, we do, you know, the trust is one thing, but then there's other documents that you need to document the gifts properly. And we're trying to get those put together as best we can too. And I, I don't know, what do you think, Rachel? What, what percentage do you think the rest of the year is going to be for you doing that? Oh, that's a tough one. Yeah, I, I would say we're not, yeah, I agree. We're not as high as what you're seeing, Darren. I would say if you're seeing like a 60, honestly, I'd say we're seeing like a 40. It's hard because we, we, right right, right now, we're seeing a lot of clients who, you know, after we've talked through them, we've really analyzed all the issues and whether or not they should move forward. It's, it's like, okay, let's move to the next step and we'll get to stage nine out of the process, out of the 10 step process. And that's where everything stalls. And it's just, we're sitting right there and it's like, okay, do we pull the trigger and just actually do this? But we're just sitting right there. So I feel like I could see the next month and a half still being a lot of idgets, a lot of drafting and preparing, but whether or not documents are signed by December 31st, that's a different question. Yeah, hopefully they are thinking of a few. I'm really hoping they are. But as you know, for a lot of the clients that we're talking about, so we're talking about clients that have 22 plus million dollars. Okay. You usually don't collect 22 plus million dollars in cash. That would be rare. So Mm -hmm. usually you're you're not talking about straightforward asset transactions. So to actually do the transaction is labor intensive. There's just a lot of thinking and work and reviewing and drafting that goes into just doing the the transfer. And then if you have a concern about the valuations, because maybe you're using assets that don't have an easily ascertainable value to them, um, then you it just adds a whole nother level of complexity. And that that's where I, you know, I want things kind of ready to go. But that's where I get the most nervous is getting say, like two weeks left in December. And now all of a sudden, you have clients with these difficult to value assets and difficult to manage um, asset classes. And there literally isn't enough time in the day to do it the right way, quote unquote, right? Like you could do it, but there's a, you know, maybe there's a better way that it could be done if you had the time to do it. I'm a little terrified by the, uh, the clients that I haven't spoken to or the, the new clients that come in the door. And for, for one, you're like, 
who are you? <laughs> you, have to, you have to get to know them. So a lot of these clients I've been working with, I've known them for, gosh, a decade or you know five years. I have sufficient knowledge of their asset base, what they're working with, good relationships with the, the appraisals uh, to get a, not, we don't need the full-blown appraisal report done this year. I just need a number that's not going to change too much. Um, I don't know what your guys' opinion is. I'm still a firm believer. If somebody has $11.58 million in exemption, I like coming in probably around like 10 points, you know, seven. And that way, if there's any wiggle room in the appraisal, um, there's still no tax paid. But in addition to that, you know, I, I'll say this, I never fear the IRS. Um, I, I just don't want to welcome them because, you know, anytime there is a taxable gift where there's actually tax paid, they will call and they're going to ask you about your appraisal. They're going to argue what your valuation discounts are. But if they see that ultimately the appraisal has come in and it's 10-7 and they don't have any wiggle room, the likelihood of audits, obviously, it's not worth their time. They still could audit it, but I mean, if they come and say your, your appraisal was incorrect, your valuation just goes incorrect, it's like, okay, we'll adjust it. There's still no tax due. Thank you for your time and effort. Uh, I, I just don't see that that happening too much. Yeah, I'm so si I'm similar to you. I like to leave a little bit of wiggle room. The number that tends to help me sleep at night is a million because I feel like that'd be a big adjustment, right? A million dollars would be a big adjustment on a ten million dollar gift. So you know, it makes me feel nice. Uh, I we have we're not pushing like. The whole envelope. We're not trying to like cut right up to the edge where now you're getting into fights with the IRS, not only on valuation, but then you're getting into fights with the IRS about gifting methodologies and um, things like divine, defined value clauses or price adjustment clauses and all sorts of fun mm -hmm. things that we could go on and on and on about. But um, I don't want to have those fights if I don't have to. So I, <laughs> I, I'm with you. I like to leave a little wiggle room. Sure. And, and to pick on our profession a bit, if there's an audit, I mean, the attorney's fees and the accounting fees and everything else that goes into it is dipping into that, you know, that valuation discount and the savings that they're ultimately the transaction. But granted, if you're transferring, let's just say $11 million to an idget and the appreciation and the 11 million is outside of the estate for estate tax purposes, the difference between our tax savings versus, uh, you know, the bill, it's always fun to calculate that for a client saying, well, you know, over the life of this, and we can calculate if that if you live X amount of years, and this grows to like 30 million, uh, my fees were, you know, X dollars, I, it's like, the, the, the tax savings are absolutely insane. That's why it's fun to be in the area of estate planning. Yes, it is useful. I have still had clients even after showing them the money say, I don't think that's going to work. Or, you know, showing them the savings, say, I don't think that's going to work. I'm like, uh, are we having a different conversation? Well, were we where are we not connecting here? Because I think the words I said are pretty understandable. I still have a hard time convincing uh, clients that Section 1014 is a, is a real thing, like a step up in basis. Because <laughs> I'm like, no, it's actually the 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 one of the greatest tax planning uh, code sections in the entire Internal Revenue Code. The drawback is somebody has to die for for it to be used. And like, no, I, I don't believe that. I'm like, it's all right. <laughs> Check with your CPA, come back to me, and anyway. Yep.
I'm with you. Um, all right, let's let's change gears just a little bit. Let's talk about one of the propositions that passed in Arizona, Prop 208. So give us the brief primer on that, and then we can dive in. Uh, do we have to talk about it? <laughs> well, you don't have to. You don't have to. We can't force you to do anything, Darren. No, we would. We would, uh... Uh, we would like you to talk about it. How about that? And Rachel is asking nicely. Please, pretty please. So. As you guys probably know, so I have done a presentation. Um, it's called Forget the Cold Winters, I'm Moving to Somewhere Warm. It's about uh, the interstate practice of law. So I, I presented it at the Notre Dame Tax and Estate Planning Conference. I just presented it at this, this Seattle Estate Planning Seminar. And one of the discussions is that clients are moving from cold weather places, which usually have their high tax jurisdiction, and they're moving to lovely places like Arizona and Florida, which are low tax jurisdiction. Prop 208, we can't say that anymore. We went from, and I don't know these numbers for, for exact, but I believe we were number 11 or 10 as the most 10th favorable tax jurisdiction in the country. Now we are in the bottom 12, 10. And so the, the analysis is absolutely flipped where, I mean, some people might find this offensive, but people do vote with their feet where high net worth individuals, and I've received tons of emails from clients where I had a... <laughs> Several emails where the subject line was the only message in the entire email is just saying, I'm moving to Florida or I'm moving to Nevada. But essentially what Prop 28 is doing is, you know, 4.24 essentially is our top state income tax rate. For high net worth individuals, it's practically doubling. And um, there's a lot of people that are uncomfortable with that. And so we, we kind of mentioned the business sales before. Um, there are a, a lot of clients right now, and I'm sure you guys have the same thing, where they're looking to move their businesses out of the state. So it, it has significant tax and estate planning significance, this Proposition 28. Um, now, I, I will, maybe I'm just going to be starting rumors here, but I heard from a good source that um, the Goldwater Institute is going to be challenging the constitutionality of Prop 208. I did really well in constitutional law in, in law school, but that was many, many years ago. But uh, Brent or Rachel, do you remember like uh, anything in con law about just not wanting to pay high taxes makes it unconstitutional? <laughs> I don't know what their angle is, but from my best of my knowledge, I don't remember that being in there. So I, I you know, who knows what, what the actual challenge is going to be, but uh, I'll pause here to get your feedback on that. <laughs> Rachel took con law most recently, but I don't remember that in my con law class. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the rules haven't changed. I, I don't recall hearing that either in my class. That, that definitely wasn't on the bar. Nope, wasn't on any of that. And maybe, so we'll, and, we'll, and if I and if I missed this, sorry, Darren, that was totally my fault. But, uh, and maybe just to, to flesh out 208, the idea with 208 is if you have, uh, if you have income, and we're not, it's not clear what that means yet. Like we don't have the legislation to say what income means. But if you have income over 250 as an individual or 500,000 as a married filing jointly, then you have to pay this extra three and a half percent surcharge. I think it's only on the extra amount, not everything leading up to that number. But again, we don't have the legislation. So we don't know precisely like the mechanics of how it's going to work. If it nope. works that way, um, then it's still a pretty substantial increase. And we're about four and a half 
right now as a top rate. So to add another three and a half on top is, as you were saying, just about double. That there, I've heard quite a few people suggest that it's going to, you know, kill the Arizona economy or Arizona's competitiveness. And the reference is usually vis-a-vis Arizona. Now the 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 thing that I used to always hear pre-November 3rd uh, for Arizona was that, you know, Arizona at four and a half is so much more competitive than California at 13.3% that therefore there's all sorts of jobs, et cetera, moving to Arizona. Well, that might be true, but there's a state just Northwest of us that has zero and we're not going to oh, yeah. get to zero. We were never going <laughs> to get to zero. So if you were kind of trying to compare like for like, we were never the low tax jurisdiction in this corner of the world. Um, but we're certainly not as far down the list as we used to be. Yeah, I'll be, I mean, and, and thank you, Brett. Yeah, no, through my whining and, and complaining about, you know, not being one of the most favorable tax jurisdiction, I didn't give any of the specifics on it. But that that's my understanding is that uh, 250 for individuals, 500 for married couples, and it's just on the, the overage. So that would be correct. But yeah, and clearly, if that's, um, if these Hail Mary, um, you know, challenges to the constitutionality of Prop 2A, they fail, and, and I have no reason to, to believe otherwise. You know, this is going to be impactful for, it, it's going to generate a ton of revenue for the state, at least in the, in my mind, in the first five to, to, to seven years. What would be curious to see, and I don't know how you track that this is other than asking the tax attorneys across the state, hey, how many of your high net worth clients have left, um, is how do you track ultimately how much has left the state and how many opportunities of businesses didn't move to the state of Arizona because of that? And so as the revenues will go up, arguably significantly in the, in the state of Arizona for tax revenues, you just kind of wonder, you know, what's the loss or is it just you know, how do you calculate that? And so that, that's really what the argument I think over 208 could be over a 10 year period. I'm hoping that somebody will be able to quantify that a decade from now. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming someone will. I, and I've, so I've heard that argument too of like, well, businesses won't bring, they won't come and they won't bring their jobs to Arizona. I don't think that's technically true either because um, how many, and sorry, and I'm not, I'm not actually trying to um, defend Prop 208 because I personally don't necessarily love tax being legislated by proposition. I just, a, a yes, no vote is not a good way to do complicated tax things. But um, but if you think about corporations, for example, that come and open up uh, facilities in another state, how many of those jobs pay $250,000? And that's assuming it's a flat gross income number where it could be an adjusted, an AGI number, which would be even more than 250. Um, not a lot of those jobs are paying that kind of money. So what you're really talking about is the C-suite crowd. Are they going to be moving with the facility to Arizona? And the answer to that might be no. Um, so let me give you an example. But those are our clients, though. So. <laughs> I, I understand. No, 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 I understand. I understand. I understand. Yeah, I mean, I'm not suggesting I'm, otherwise. I'm but selfish. I'm selfish. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, 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 no. I, I understand. But for example, in Tucson, Caterpillar has a facility in Tucson. They have a an office here. Those are not the, that's not the corporate office. So the C-suite people at Caterpillar, I mean, there may be a handful that are in Tucson, but the real C-suite folks at Caterpillar are not in Tucson. It's just like a little satellite office. I think that's more what you would find. You'd have a harder time getting the C-suite headquarters 
uh, contingent of the business to move to the state. And instead, you're going to get, you could get satellite offices because it's still cheap to buy land here. It's still relatively cheap um, to pay property taxes here. And we still do write big government checks to incentivize businesses to move to the state. And none of that is income tax. And Mm-hmm. So that that's if I was trying to look in a crystal ball and figure out what could this possibly mean, that's my guess. I'm sure I'll be wrong in 10 years. <laughs> but I just been fat. I mean, for the last, you know, dozen years, I've been talking about, you know, a lot of and, and obviously I'm not too worried. Arizona is a wonderful place to live. There's a lot of, you know, quality clients, but a lot of the new clients that come in our doors are clients that move from high test tax jurisdictions to Arizona specifically because they're a lower tax jurisdiction. So Illinois, a ton of my new clients come from the state of Illinois. Um, California is the other one. Um, you know, certainly some some East Coast, but I mean, it'd be just fascinating to see, you know, when people, you know, vote with their feet. Um, are, are they going to just keep keep uh, going to Nevada or are they going to look to Texas and, and, and Florida instead of Arizona? But, you know, Arizona, there's going to be plenty of estate planning work that goes around, uh, obviously, with our population and our, um, our wealth levels. So you're getting licensed in Texas now? <laughs> no. The thought of taking another another bar exam or, you know, granted, you can wave in and there's reciprocity. But, you know, the thought of like some of the states that I believe the, the desirable ones, they, they don't have reciprocity. You can't wave in. And so, I mean, I'm not taking another bar exam. <laughs> There's zero interest uh, to me. I don't blame you. I don't blame you. We're, we're in the process of waving into Colorado. You have to retake the ethics exam. And oh, wow. That was enough. Yeah, that was hard. Yeah. Yeah. Too, way, way too many <laughs> tests right there. Just that one. It's too much. It actually, well, I don't. Colorado statutes. I looked at them before. I'm like, is this, is this the state planning law? It's just, yeah, Colorado is fascinating. They, they, they're not, they're not. Are they uniform probate and trust code? I don't. I don't know. I mean, their statutes are drafted so oddly. They are. They are UPC UTC, but that's as of a couple of years ago. Before that, they had wow. their own their own trust statute. But they're okay. like most jurisdictions where they take, say, the uniform trust code and then they do their own little modifications to it. So it's not not necessarily like for like. I mean, look. Arizona's done tons of modifications to their UTC, and you can never assume that if you read it in our statute that it exists in another UTC jurisdiction. We're just, we have fun with it, I guess. So as you guys know, so my, my father is a tax and estate planning attorney as well. So is my wife. Uh, but my father actually, you know, worked on the committee drafting some of the, the Uniform Trust Code when Arizona adopted it. And so if I ever want to get under his skin, I know which ones that he worked on. Like I know which statutes he specifically drafted. And so every now and then, you know, I'll, I'll be like, you know what, hey, this, this, specific statute like gosh I, I don't know what the drafter's intent was it doesn't make any sense it's poorly written <laughs> so now i've revealed too much to you so you know hopefully he's not listening to the podcast but uh no. <laughs> in, the, in the modifications especially in arizona I'm, I'm very familiar with them <laughs> yeah yeah well i've i've actually worked with your dad on legislation with the state bar amending the uh trust code and He's very uh, not meticulous. Sorry, I I didn't mean to to even remotely say uh, manipulative, if that sounded like it. Um, Meticulous, and he wants to talk about it a lot, which I think is 
really a good way to, to write legislation. So it's like hats off mm -hmm. to him because he probably made it better by doing that. I would have been much more like, okay, that's good. Now it's written. <laughs> now we're ready to go. But yeah, yeah, I've had, I've had a lot of late night conversations with him about writing legislation and modifying our statutes. I'll say that nobody loves the, the trust code more than he does. So he was an yes. excellent mentor for me. So yes. he has a genuine, a genuine love for it. Okay, that concludes part one of our conversation with Darren Case. Part two will come out next week. Part two is a rapid fire session where we throw ideas at Darren and just get his hot take on all those ideas. I hope you enjoyed this part one and I hope you enjoy part two next week. See you then.